Am I the only one who brought their lunch today? Uh, you, you didn't know I was preaching, so you're probably going to be here for lunch. No, it's just. <laughs> um, but uh, as you know, we do um, a lot of things. I do a lot of character-based education in schools. And uh, one of the activities that I love to do is uh, this can activity. And some of you may have seen me do this before, but uh, this can activity is uh, basically what we do is we look for the strongest person in the room. And, uh, you know, there's always students that are willing to volunteer for that. So uh, I see some big men here right in the front row. see Mr. Darren and Mr. Jeff here. So uh, uh, would you, Darren, would you be willing to come up here? You're pretty kind of a strong man. And uh, see if we can still get this on our, uh, our little uh, online. Welcome to those of you joining us online. So here's what you do. This is uh, a can. Uh, by the way, these are really good. This is a pineapple uh, seltzer thing, but I won't get into that. No free advertising. Um, so the idea here is to crush the can, okay, with one hand. All right, no nails. I don't think you have any, but uh, just to squeeze it. And uh, usually we do it over someone's head. But uh, Carly Ray's really happy right now. We're not going to mess with her. So um, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, it's, it's not that heavy. You're just going to hold it like that, OK? Just like this. OK, one hand. OK, yeah. All right, now let us know when you start trying. OK. <laughs> are you really trying? This is, no, no, don't open it. Don't open it. <laughs> I once had a student do that. I was doing a graduation on, on stage, and I wasn't looking, and the, the kid, yeah, one hand. You, you want to do this, don't you? Yeah. Uh, Jeff, you want to show him how it's done? If he can't do it. If he can't, can't do it, yeah. Yeah, that's the idea. The idea here is that I've got two cans. They have the exact same image on them, okay? But obviously, they're different uh, than on the inside. Caleb, you're right in the front row. Uh, you're your uh, Darren's son. Would you willing to come up and show Dad how strong you are? Okay, you know, they say the sons are uh, always like to upstart the dads, so would you take this can and crush it? Oh gosh, look at that. Look at that, yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <clears throat> so uh, obviously, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, one can was full, one can was not, you know, but there's a point here, and that is both cans experience what? Pressure, yeah. Do you and I, in real life, experience different forms of pressure? Hopefully no one is squeezing you regularly. <laughs> uh, but no, we do. We experience lots of different stress, you know, whether it be peer pressure, but whether it be uh, uh, financial pressure, whether it be the pressure of our health, of our future, whether it be wondering about what's going to happen to our children. We're all experiencing different forms of pressure on a regular basis. The question is, what's going to enable us to handle that pressure? And this, these two cans, the illustration that we do in the schools is, you know, this represents a person that's committed to image. It's all about looking good. It's all about feeling good in the moment. It's all about what people think of me, okay? Character is who you are on the inside. Are you honest? Are you responsible? Are you trustworthy? Are you, do you have the ability to persevere, okay? Now, we can't look at people and see if they're trustworthy and honest. We really can't. That takes time. And so we tend to judge people by the outside. A lot of us build relationships on image. And, they, and we wonder why they don't last. We don't rely on character. So I share this with you because today we're looking at uh, the end of chapter Acts, uh, Acts chapter 12. This, we're finishing up the series in the book of Acts that we're doing for this summer. So if you, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Acts 12. And, uh, you know, really... Uh, the, the, um, the early church was, was facing incredible pressure. 
And we're going to look at a little bit of that today, and we've already been hearing about it as we've been going through the book of Acts. And what enabled them to handle the pressure was that they really had a firm faith in the word of God and in the, and, and in the sovereignty of God and the power of God. And they knew who they were serving. And a lot of times if we don't know that, we're tempted to just kind of give up and give in. One of the things, uh, I don't know if you see an increasing amount of despair and hopelessness in our culture. I don't know if you had a chance to see some of the events that took place politically this week. I don't know if you're aware of what's happening in Russia and with China. But there's just an overwhelming sense of dread about the future. And a, almost a sense of hopelessness. You know, it's interesting. We, we put up on the board in the, in the classroom character versus image. And we list the character qualities. And sometimes when we're doing this, we have students brainstorm a list of character qualities. And one student uh, the other day, not too long ago, said, um, what's the point of this? This is useless. Nobody has these character qualities. Nobody's perfect. And we said, yeah, you're right. You know what? None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived in being honest, responsible, respectful, persevering, caring, compassionate, kind, trustworthy, but we can move towards that. We're developing. We're all growing. And then I asked this question. I said, imagine living in a world where nobody was respectful. Nobody was responsible. Nobody told the truth. Nobody was kind. Would you want to live in a world like that? I've been doing that this year. Actually, we've had already two or three weeks of classes. And students are like, no. <laughs> now, some of you are like, I feel like we do live in a world like that today. Yeah. I just go into a movie, and that's kind of the, the scene that they, they portray. Just watch the news. And so this morning, I want to give you something that will help strengthen you in your hope in, in God's word. And this is, this is our big idea this morning. Our hope is in the Lord Almighty. No force can stop the spread of the gospel according to his purpose. That's really the theme of this whole series that we've been doing, especially Acts 12, but even when we've done Acts 10 or 11. The gospel is for everyone. Our hope is in the Lord Almighty. No force can stop, no pressure, no opposition can stop the spread of his gospel according to his purpose. You ever find a verse, and it's just like you, in a passage that you've read before, and you're like, oh my gosh, I never saw that. That is so awesome. That happened to me this week as I was getting ready for this, this message. And it's in the book of Revelation. And so here's what I'm going to do. You guys have been kind of like standing or sitting for a while and doing a lot of talking heads. So I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. It's going to be on the screen. And uh, I'm not preaching from Revelation today, but there's just one verse I want you to see in its context that really shows us that, you know what, no matter what's going on with our world leaders especially, no matter what's going on in our world, we can know that Jesus Christ is still on the throne. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before the, his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and here it is, the ruler of what? The kings of the earth. I just want to stop there and have you look at that. That's the phrase that jumped out at me. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
He rules over Putin, Biden, whoever you want to say, Jinping uh, from China, whoever you want to think of, okay? And even those past, he is the ruler. Let me con let's continue the passage. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are on the throne, that you are an almighty God, and nothing can stop the spread of your gospel. Lord, and nothing can, 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 can stop the work that you have begun in us to become more like you. Father, we ask, Lord, that during this time that you would be glorified and lifted up and that we would be filled with your spirit and that we would have your hope to face whatever comes our way. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, if you've been in Acts 12, you know that uh, last week, if you were here, Acts 12 is just a fantastic passage. It starts off, though, really dark and really grim. Um, as you know, James, uh, James and John, who basically came up to Jesus and said, we want you to do whatever you ask. And Jesus is like, can you really drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Uh, well, James, in one sense, experienced that. Uh, in the beginning of chapter 12, and if you have your Bible, please turn there, uh, it says that King Herod had him killed by the sword. And so immediately we learn, and then we see this over and over again in the book of Acts, although God is almighty, he does not prevent the untimely deaths of some of his choicest servants. It's just a reality. Um, you know, it's one thing to have a timely death of somebody who's in their old age and you know they're going to go. It's still very, very painful and very, very troubling. It's another to see someone untimely go who is just, you know, who was, who is sick, maybe at a young age. It, it's, it's, it's horrific to see someone go by accident or at a young age. But this, this chapter starts off with a death that's on purpose. It's a murder, and it's a murder by King Herod Agrippa. Now, Pastor Dell did a good job last week of giving you the history of the Herods, so I'm not going to get into that today. But Herod is a main character in chapter 12. And he starts off by killing uh, James, uh, one of the disciples. But then, there, then he arrests Peter, if you know the story. He arrests Peter, and he basically wants to do the same thing to Peter, but he's planning to have a trial for Peter. So he puts like this, all these magnificent, strong guards to guard Peter. Um, and uh, finally, the church kind of wakes up here and says, you know what, we're going to be praying. You know, they, saw, they heard about James being killed, so they just start having this earnest prayer meeting. And they just start calling out in the name of the Lord. And... Uh, to their surprise, an angel comes and, and, and delivers, delivers Peter. Literally gets him out of this, this mess, brings him to the door. He's knocking on the door, and they can't believe it, that it's Peter. Rhoda, you remember the servant girl's kind of like, it's Peter, it's Peter. You know, it's like, no, it's not, it's his angel. You know, the church is like still not fully believing, but they're praying. And so we learn that because we rely on the Lord Almighty, our, because our hope is in the Lord Almighty, uh, he can easily deliver his servants from humanly impossible situations if it is his will. So you've got these two things going on, don't you? 
You've got why did James get killed and why and Peter Peter Peter's miraculously delivered. Uh, next Sunday is uh, 9/11, and we're going to have a moment in our service to you know discuss to, to honor those who 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 were who were killed and those who who you know what happened on that day, and it was a horrific day. And I still remember when that happened. I had somebody in my church who in my small group whose cousin was flying the plane that went down. I think he was actually the pilot of the plane that went down in Pennsylvania because of Todd Beamer and, the, and a strong, courageous group that did something to stop them from going into a building in Washington. And I just remember my brother in Christ being like, okay, you know, hearing all these stories of how God miraculously delivered people from the two towers or leading them not to go to work that day. But my, my brother John was like, well... Why didn't he deliver my, my brother, you know? And that's just, you know, the nature of the reality. You know, Scripture says that God is sovereign. God is almighty. And we, we, we don't have to question his power. Even when we read Scripture, there's nothing here to hide. I mean, there's people that die. There's casualties all the time. We're in a war. We are in a war. And our war, the war is a spiritual war, really. And, and so Satan, through Agrippa, through King Herod, is, uh, is at work and he's doing things. God is not limited by the prayers of his people, but he works through our prayers to teach us to depend on him. And he can deliver. And so it doesn't mean that we should not pray for deliverance. All right? All right, let's jump into the passage. Acts 12, we're going to start at verse 19. This is right after Peter's been delivered. And uh, uh, if you remember, when Peter was delivered earlier in Acts, he goes back out. They tell him to stop preaching. He just goes back out and he starts preaching. Well, this is, this is no longer safe. So he goes into hiding. Some people think he goes to Antioch. Look at verse 19 in Acts 12. It says, After Herod had made a thorough search made for him, for Peter, and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and he ordered that they be executed. Talk about a person of violence here. His own people he's killing. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, and stayed there. Uh, many people believe Caesarea was on the beach, and they think that that was a vacation for him. He's like, okay, this is getting really stressful. And so he just kind of wants to escape um, and takes a vacation. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, uh, countries up north, areas up north. They now joined together, excuse me, and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. So apparently he gets together with them. In verse 21, it says, On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes and on his throne, uh, he, he sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Verse 24 says, But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Barnabas and Saul, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. And then the chapter ends. And this kind of ends like the third part of Acts, and I'll walk you through that in a moment here. What can we learn from this? Well, first of all, from verses 20 to 23, um, the beginning part, we pray to the Lord Almighty, and he can easily remove the most powerful and proud human leaders when it's his time to do so. Amen? Yeah. 
the Lord builds up, he raises up, and he tears down leaders. And if a leader is not going to give glory to him, he has the right and can do so to do that. The angel struck Peter, and he woke up so that he could be delivered. The angel also struck Herod, but he was eaten with worms and died. Uh, Peter told the gathering at Mary's house to report these things to James, the other James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James, and the brethren, who may have been hiding out elsewhere. He was not directed this time to go and stand in the temple and preach, like I said earlier, but he went off to Antioch. Meanwhile, Herod assumed that the guards had taken a bribe, so he has them all executed. Um, it's interesting. Uh, there's an account of this in uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian. He wrote uh, that we have uh, from the, the, the second century, first century, Antiquities of the Jews. He says that Herod put a, on a garment made entirely of silver. And when he went out on the rostrum, the sun's rays hit it. And it was so resplendent that the people were awestruck. They're like, oh my gosh, this is like a sign from God. You know, either being carried away or perhaps to flatter him, they cried out that he was God, a God. Now that was common in the Roman world, in the Roman culture, to, 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 you know, to pray to gods and have deities and then to deify people. They deified Caesar. But King Herod is a Jew. He should have known better. When he did not rebuke them, he immediately got a severe and violent pain in his belly. This is according to Josephus. After five days of awful suffering, he died at age 54. Herod knew enough about God that he should have seen God's hand in Peter's deliverance and realized that he was fighting against God. He should have remembered the story of King Nebuchadnezzar. How many of you know the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in, in the book of Daniel? Yeah. <laughs> whom God humbled for his pride. But instead, Herod foolishly accepted the adulation of all these people that were under his power. Since he did not give God the glory, God used a lowly tapeworm to bring down his humanly powerful and proud. A couple lessons from this. Number one, to seek glory for ourselves is to declare war against God. And you say, well, I'm not claiming to be God. I don't ever do that. Oh, yes, we do, don't we? <laughs> Romans 1 says we exchange the glory of God and we refuse to give thanks and we worship the created things instead of the creator. I don't know about you, but whenever I sit on the throne of my life and say I'm gonna, I know better than, than what God does, there's a sense in which I am doing things for my own. I think we must all be aware of the temptation of pride. Um, God never boxes in the wicked until they force themselves into a box. Okay? You see that with Cain? He lovingly tries to bring Cain out of his wickedness, and Cain goes back into his anger. We see this with Pharaoh, okay? In fact, Pharaoh is the classic example whom God didn't really bring judgment until he had rejected God like nine times. It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he keeps seeing the miracles of God, and he keeps rejecting you and I have that same propensity in us, except for the grace of God. We, God does things. You know, that's why the, one of the number one commands besides do not fear in the Bible is what? Remember. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Yeah. It's, it's because we forget. We forget what he's done. Uh, God did this with Judas, tried to bring him out, and Ananias, Sapphira, and many other Bible characters. 
we face this, these temptations. Um, on the other hand, God does not necessarily remove temptations from Christians or non-Christians. I love the story about the guy who was on a diet. Um, and he, he ends up bringing a large box of donuts to work. And everybody knows he's on a diet, you know. And so he's, they start teasing him, like, you know, why did you bring these donuts? You know, what are you doing with the donuts? What's up with the donuts? And he basically looks at them and he says, God wanted me to have these. <laughs> and uh, they're like, well, how do you know? Prove it, you know. And he says, well, I prayed that if God wanted me to have donuts this morning, that he would give me a parking place in front of the bakery. And sure enough, on my eighth time around the block, there was a place. <laughs> now, we, we can rationalize what we think is God's will, can't we? Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's pretty sick. Uh, the great poet Lord Byron wrote his last poem when he was 36, and he titled it, Upon My 36th Birthday. In it he wrote, My days are in the yellow leaf. The flower and the fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Apparently, neither Herod nor Byron grasped the foundational fact that God is in control. God is in control. I want to give you guys a quick little, uh, well, first, before I do that, let me share with you James, because I, I mentioned earlier, when we seek glory for ourselves, we, we, we pit ourselves against God. To declare war against God is to commit eternal suicide, because God always wins. You say, well, I'm not, I'm not that headstrong as King Herod. Well, look at what the book of James says. Because the world, where's that image? The world says, you know, it's all about self. It's all about self. Look at James 4. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know? He's speaking to Christians here, to believers. He's speaking to the scattered believers in the book of James, scattered, persecuted believers across uh, Turkey and Greece and that area, Asia Minor. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. In verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. So it's, it, it, God is not wanting to spite or punish people or, or torment them. He gives more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the who? To the humble. Yeah. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. God is always trying to bring us back to himself. And, he's, and he has a heart for leaders who are fallen and who are leading people astray. One of the things um, when I was uh, graduating from high school and feeling a, full, a calling to full-time ministry was um, I went to Moody Bible Institute to visit. And I'll never forget, because I came out of that, that the time, of, I'm going to date myself here, the 80s, the hard rock and the metal, heavy metal. And all my friends at school, they were into all these bands that were into heavy metal and all this. And I remember going to Moody for like an overnight weekend and I remember seeing a sign saying prayer meeting for, and I don't know exactly what it said, but it was basically for ACDC and all these guys that were in these bands, Ozzy Osbourne, it was all, all, and they had specific names. And what I found out was that there was a group of people at Moody who were not full of self-righteousness saying these people are evil, but they were saying, God, we are praying. These are influencers. These are influencers. I am praying that they come to know Jesus Christ. And to me, that was like, wow, here's people praying for influencers. You know, I don't know if you know this, but Ronnie James Dio from Black Sabbath became a Christian. 
okay? Carrie Livgren from Kansas, several guys from Kansas became Christians. Alice Cooper professes the name of Jesus Christ, okay? Even with his snakes. <laughs> but, I mean, when we pray, God moves. And that's why the scriptures say we should pray for our leaders. We should pray for them, even no matter how bad or evil they're doing. And sometimes when we pray, God changes our hearts. Let me give you really quick a little bit of a systematic theology of how does God deal with leaders, okay? The first thing is, and and, and don't worry, I'm not going to walk you too long in this, but when it comes to human government, the Bible portrays God as actively involved in order to accomplish his purposes. He's not just sitting there and saying, oh, you're just going to go do your own thing. He knows that governments have influence. Romans 13 teaches that God established governmental authority. Now, that's amazing because that was written by Paul when the evil Roman emperor Nero was persecuting and killing Christians. And Paul is admonishing them to some extent to submit to the authorities and to pray for them in Romans 13. Okay? 1 Peter 2, 13 and 17 is also important. Uh, God has the power to install and depose kings. All right? I mentioned King Nebuchadnezzar. I was reading that story. I love Daniel. I love the book of Daniel. I don't know if you ever get a chance to read Daniel, but um, King Nebuchadnezzar is the ruling Babylonian king at that time. I think it's like 500, 586 B.C., around that time, where Babylon comes in and captures Israel and takes all these Israelites captive. And he has a dream in chapter 2. And and all of his astrologers are like, he's like, I want to know what this dream means. So all the astrologers are like, cool, just tell me what the dream is and we'll tell you what it means. And I love Nebuchadnezzar in this position because he goes, no, you tell me what my dream was. And all the astrologers who are based on false whatever, okay, you know, they're like, no, only the gods can do that. And he has them executed. Not good, but I mean, he kills them all. And then he wants to kill Daniel because Daniel is considered at that time one of his astrologers. Well, what does Daniel do? What did the church do when they heard Peter was arrested and James was killed? Yeah, they got a prayer meeting together, and they earnestly prayed. And so he earnestly prays, and God reveals to him the dream. Has God ever answered a prayer of yours where you literally just went, oh, my gosh, and you just got down on your knees, and you just said, Lord, you reign. You are God. I am not. You are awesome. That's what Daniel does in chapter 2. And I'll, and I'll read it to you. It says, he says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things, and he knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I love Daniel's theology here, and we can get something from there. God is the establisher of of kings. God raised up wicked leaders in the past, Habakkuk 1, he allowed them to be. Does he want them to do what they do? No. Just like he doesn't want you to get a divorce, but they allowed it to happen, okay? He allows for things to happen. Teaches that God raised up Babylon in order to discipline Israel for their sin. God allowed Pilate, who sanctioned the execution of Jesus, to accomplish his will. That was his will. You say, well, is this this free will, or is this God, you know, being a, a puppet master? Well, it's, it's both. It, it, it's God's sovereignty is, and our free will is a divine mystery. We can't figure it out. Just like this roof 
has two sides to it. If you're standing on this side, you can only see this roof, this side of the roof. You can't see what's on this side. On this side of heaven, we cannot understand how our free will accomplishes God's purposes. We cannot. But this we know from Scripture, that God is sovereign. Okay? God is sovereign. He, he, he is in control. And yet at the same time, Scripture says, he allows free will. Okay? And he holds us accountable. He held accountable the leaders for putting to death Jesus. If you don't believe me, read Acts chapter 2. He literally says that. He says, what God predetermined you would do, your, answer, your, your, your leaders did. They crucified Jesus, and they're guilty for it. Okay? That's hard for us because we think, you know, we think we're God, and we think we should be able to, or if he's God, we should be able to understand all of his ways. And I think uh, Pastor Dell last week read Isaiah 58 and verses 8 and 9, which says, my ways are what? are not your ways. Yeah, the ways of God are not ours. We can't put God in a box. We can't be God here. So yeah, every ruler is accountable to God for how or he or she uses their authority. Isaiah 13 talks about the Medo-Persian Empire would be raised up to destroy Babylon. Babylon was still held accountable for their excesses of violence, even though God granted them the power to exercise their strength over others in, their first, in the first place. We can't always know God's purposes for leaders. We can't understand God's will without having a divine perspective. Even Paul, who had a vision up into the third heaven, okay, and couldn't even utter things, this, listen to what, how he concludes uh, the book of Romans, pretty much, after talking about God hardening Israel and yet Israel rejecting Jesus. Look at what he says. Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So Jesus reigns over all. What is, what is he called in, in Revelation 1? The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on the earth. We can trust him. Amen? He's in control. He's working his purposes. All right, let's uh, start to wrap things up here. Verses 24 and 25, uh, what does it say? It says this, We can trust in the Lord Almighty because his gospel cannot be stopped by any opposition. Look at verse 24 if you still have your Bible open. What does it say? But the word of God did what? Continue to spread, yeah. You know, King Herod's doing his thing, okay, boom, he's taken out, but the word of God continues to spread, all right? And what's going to happen is, is that this is going to set the stage. Um, he talks about the return of Saul, who's Paul, Barnabas, and then John Mark to Antioch. This sets the stage for the expansion of the gospel among the Gentiles that comprises the rest of the book of Acts. Herod and the Jews opposed God's Savior and came under his judgment. The apostles and early church suffered much and many died violent deaths. But the word of God continued to grow and be multiplied. God rewarded them abundantly and eternally in heaven. You know what a practical application of today's message would be? Go out and share the gospel this week. Continue spreading the word. If you're scared, ask for boldness. Paul did regularly. He said, pray that I might declare it fearlessly. 
If you're clueless, say, God, give me an opportunity. <laughs> I used to do that. I say, Lord, give me an opportunity. I used to wake up, one of the first prayers I pray in the morning, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. I was so clueless that at the end of the day, when I would spend time with God, I was like, oh, dang, that was, a, that was an opportunity I had, and I blew it. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, you answered my prayer. You gave me the opportunity. I didn't really do anything, <laughs> you know, but, but he will. There's so many opportunities to spread his word. Let me give you guys just an, an idea here of what's going on in the book of Acts. Um, there's, 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 there's three parts that we've already been through. And I'm so glad we're doing Acts, that you guys are doing Acts here. I, I hope you, you'll pick it up again next summer. Acts is like a, 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 a shot in the arm of reminding us what the church is to look like and what we should be doing. And so it's, I think it's very healthy for us to do a little Acts and then stop and then come back to it. But um, Acts the, part one ends in 542. And it ends like this. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. It's terrible. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. By the way, flogged is the same thing that Jesus experienced when he was being whipped and, and, and piles of flesh was being whipped out of his back. The apostles went through that. Then verse 41 says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin crying, despairing, feeling like this is not worth it. <laughs> no, look at it. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So they're, they're, they're faithful in Jerusalem. They're getting their butts whipped, but they're going for it, okay? And then the next part that we looked at after chapter 5 is them taking it out. Remember Philip in Samaria? And then we've got um, uh, a few uh, Acts, uh, Paul becoming Saul, or Saul becoming Paul, I should say. Uh, and then Acts 9.31, that second section ends with this. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in what? Numbers. Who was doing the evangelism? It wasn't just the apostles. It was I spread my faith with I share my faith with you, and you share it with someone else. I don't want to embarrass anybody here, but yesterday, you know, a lot of what we do in student ministry is evangelism. Yesterday, two volunteers who are working with our students took a group of students to back to Matthew Holmes for the second straight week. It's a different group of students. But one of the students they took is a person that doesn't go to church, still trying to figure out if they believe, okay, but came to ROL. Actually, not only did they come to Revolution of Love this summer, but they came last year. Oh, but not only did they come the year, that year, but the year before, and they came to VBS. Why did they, why, how do we have this connection? Because somebody else in our congregation has been mentoring and meeting with and loving for the past four to five years this particular student, okay? So this particular student, you know, you won't see this person in church that often, you know, uh, except when they're with their mentor maybe, but you'll see them, you'll see us continuing to reach out. My point is this, is that it takes a village, you know. One person's ministering to this person. It's not, you know, it's not enough. Then, then somebody comes along and, and then somebody else comes along, you know. And to bring someone today to Christ in our dark world, in our post-Christian nation, sometimes it, it takes that kind of perseverance and love and prayer 
And I'm thankful that we have people like you who are doing that. It's not staff-driven. It's church-driven. That's so important. All right, a couple, uh, what are some takeaways that we can take from this? What are some takeaways? Prayer changes things, but only what a sovereign God wants changed. The present world is full of prejudice and injustice, but God is in charge of his world and his church. Whatever happens, we always look to the future, as Acts 11.25 reminds us. When Barnabas and Saul, actually 12.25, had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John. The great missionary journey is about to begin. Okay? Um, some takeaways. Are we praying as a church? The church that prays earnestly releases the power of God. The church that prays earnestly relegates and trusts itself to the justice of God. I think they were praying for King Herod, for God to do his thing with King Herod. I really believe that. The church that prays earnestly results in the spread of the gospel. The church thrives in difficult times when we pray earnestly and completely rely on the character of God to accomplish his mission. Amen. Um, this is still happening today. Uh, I came across a few things. How are we doing on, on our, our little time? Oh, yeah, we still got time for being here for lunch. No Bears game today, right? Um, so let's see if I have this here. Yeah. Praise the Lord. No, I don't. But I do have this. Don't worry. I, got, I always have lots of things here. You never know when I'm up here. Yeah. You guys got a sneak peek of how large my print is here. I saw that yesterday looking at that. I was like, wow, this guy's blind. Uh, uh, anyway, um, I want to show you a picture of somebody because this is still happening today. It's happening. The church is being persecuted. Probably not as much here as it is in other countries. Um, after seeing their pastor, Wang Yi, uh, and more than 150 other church members arrested, this is in China, routing, I don't know if we have a picture of the family. I don't know. Yeah, there they are, yeah. Routing, her family and other members of Early Rain Covenant Church remained firm in their faith, ready to endure whatever persecution came next. So they arrested 150 of these people. They arrested their pastor. Some feared the church would struggle as a result of repeated police raids, but instead the church grew stronger. Nobody gave up their faith, said Routing, who also worked with Pastor Wang Yi. I saw church members who were braver, and they kept worshiping every week. Even without Pastor Wang Yi, we are always worshiping God. It, you know, as Jim Cimbala Jim said this about the American church, he said, you could tell how popular the pastor is by Sunday morning attendance. You could tell how popular Jesus is by prayer meeting attendance. If you've never read Jim Cimbala's Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire book, I highly recommend it, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Jim Cimbala. But... Look at this. He says, even without Pastor Wengi, we are always worshiping God. As police interrogated church members and constantly monitored their homes, Ruiting and her family never considered leaving China. Then communist authorities used a new tactic. In 2019, police arrested a Christian couple and took custody of their four adopted children under the pretense of protecting the children from a religious cult. Routing soon learned through a neighbor that a police officer had also referred to her family as members of a religious cult. Seeing that authorities might use the same tactic to Routing's adopted brother, Jiwan, Jiwan, Routing's family made the difficult decision to leave the country. Routing and her family were able to get medical visas to Taiwan because of Jiwan's history of cancer. 
He had a tumor on his right arm as a baby. The family traveled to Taiwan in July when they remained there for two years, July 2019. Excuse me. And on June 29, 2021, they immigrated to the United States. Reflecting on their lives as Christians in China, Ruting and her family say they are grateful for the persecution they endured. He says, I think persecution is quite a blessing from God, said Ron, Routine's husband. It changed our life. God has us here to share what is happening in China, to share the evil side of President Xi Jinping. I think it is a blessing to the Chinese church. I think the gospel in China will flourish more. Routine requested prayer for Pastor Wing Yi and his family, who are still uh, under arrest, and for members of Early Rain Church who continue to follow Christ under the government's watchful eye. I think God wants me here to share this story with you, to share my experience with the English-speaking world. That's from Voice of the Martyrs, by the way. I don't know if you get there. Uh, they have an app that you can put on your phone each day to pray about people who are being persecuted each day. They also have an email. They'll send you an email update. Of, of stories like this, just to be praying. Before I, when, I, when I do close in prayer, we're going to pray for them. Um, remind me to do that if I, if I forget. Uh, we need to be praying for the persecuted church. God is good, amen? Yeah. Here it is. I wanted to share this with you. I just found it, and then we'll wrap up. All right? The church started in A.D. 37, standing atop a hillside outside of Jerusalem. Jesus gives the great commission to 11 scared men and a few of their friends, charging them to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. He promised that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him and that his spirit would go with them. It's a movement. The church is a movement. Then he ascended into heaven, leaving them all there staring at each other, saying, now what? <laughs> I think I would have been doing the same thing. In A.D. 42, Mark goes to Egypt. In A.D. 49, the Apostle Paul heads to Asia Minor, and then in 51, into Europe. In 52 A.D., AD, 52 AD Thomas takes the gospel to India. By 54 A.D., Paul is on his third missionary journey, reporting great success wherever he goes, saying that Gentiles are embracing the gospel much more enthusiastically than the Jews. Turkey, Greece, Rome. By the end of the first century, the apostles have established three major church planting centers, Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. From these centers, churches are being planted all over the Roman Empire. At the end of the second century, the church father, Irenaeus, describes the global church as geographically broad, though still numerically small. These churches know how to multiply, however, and by the end of the third century, nearly half of the Roman Empire confesses Christ. In March of 432, a guy named Patrick responds to a dream and takes the gospel to Ireland, which people now commemorate every year by getting smashed and pinching those who don't wear green. <laughs> Some of you are spacing out on me. Listen here. In 596, a church planner named Augustine not St. Augustine, a different one, ventures down to England, to what we now call England, then just an island filled with barbarians. He settles in Canterbury where he plants a church. God moves powerfully, and in the first two years, he baptizes more than 10,000 converts. In 650, a monk named Cademan, Cademan's Call, completes the first English translation of the Bible. Sadly, the religious elites 
keep it captive, believing that it's too dangerous to put into the hands of common people. The next 500 years or so were a little sketchy in terms of Christian history. That's why it's called the Dark Ages. But one of the good things that comes out of the Dark Ages is a conviction by many, like John Huss and John Wycliffe, that the most effective way to spread the gospel is to just put the Bible in the hands of common people. The power is in the Word. Let the Word do the work. By 1200 AD, the Bible is available in 22 different languages. You guys ever heard of Tyndale House Publishers? Tyndale, yes. In 1526, a man by the name of William Tyndale published the New Testament into everyday English. And with the help of his wealthy merchant friend, Humphrey Monmouth, he ships it to people all over the English-speaking world. Considering this to be a challenge to their authority, the State Church of England persuades the King of England to imprison Tyndale. He is tried for heresy, and on October 6, 1536, William Tyndale is burned at the stake. Uh, his last words as the flames engulfed his body was, Lord God, please open the King of England's eyes. In 1611, that prayer is answered when the King of England sponsors the largest Bible project ever commenced, the publication of the King James Version. The Bible's availability in English leads not only to a gospel revival in the English-speaking world, but a wave of missions throughout the rest of the world. In the 15th to 18th centuries come to be known as the golden era of missions. These are the days of William Carey and the Moravians and Adoniram John Judson. If you've never read a biography of one of these people, I encourage you to pick it up. Uh, for the first time, Christians penetrate Central Africa, Africa, inland China, and remote countries in Southeast Asia with the gospel. Many are imprisoned, most are killed. I could go on here, but I'm going to stop because God is at work. Amen? Amen. He is at work. Uh, the church is not a place. It is a movement. What, what are some takeaways from the book of Acts? Okay. Um, the original church was a movement gathered around a mission. This mission came first. It was given in Acts 1, and the church wasn't formed until Acts 2. God doesn't have a mission for his church. He made a church for his mission. The heartbeat of God is to see people come to know him. Which means a church that is not on mission is not really a church. And believers who are not on mission are not really part of the true church. Movements move, and if you're not moving, you're not part of the movement. God's grace is greater than our sin. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you have included us in your movement. Thank you that you've called my name. Thank you that you've revealed your son, Jesus, and you've given me the ability, Lord, to believe and trust in you. Lord, I pray for anybody here who has never experienced the love of Jesus Christ, that they would know, God, that you are all-powerful and you are also incredibly all-loving. Lord, we desire to be known and to be loved. And Lord, in the gospel, we are both. God, I pray that we would know at the same time how sinful we are and yet how amazingly loved we are through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for this church, that it would be a church that aligns with your mission. It would be a movement, that you'd create a movement in us, Lord, to spread the word no matter what's going on around us, Lord. Help us to be a church that prays earnestly, Father, for the leaders, for the influencers, Lord. 
Lord, I pray, God, that we would pray that, that, that no matter what happens, people would know the precious gospel, that they are loved and that Jesus died for them. Lord, I pray specifically today if there's anybody here who's really struggling with hope, feeling like that crushed can, Lord, I ask God that you would remind them, Lord, that, it, that it's in you that we are strong. I pray that we would be strong in the power of the Lord and stop trying to do it on our own. God, we need each other and we desperately need you. Lord, you, your word says that you are close to the brokenhearted and you save those who are crushed in spirit. Lord, I pray that you would be that today. As we celebrate your grace right now, God, I pray that you would bind our hearts to you so that we could be people who spread your word. In Jesus' name.